0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So what I'm doing these Monday evenings is giving a series of talks on the Eightfold Path. And um, today the topic will be uh, Right Effort. And so the Eightfold Path are a brilliant collection of eight practices that are supportive for the path to liberation, to freedom. It's also a brilliant path to any kind of maturity, maturation. It doesn't have to be about liberation. It doesn't have to be about even Buddhism. But these are eight kind of things that are very, very helpful um, to mature and to develop in, to be concerned with as we find our way in our life. And the Eightfold Path can be applied... Or be suggestive of many different things, part of the brilliance of them. And I'd like to suggest a few things here today. First, um, the Eightfold Path are sometimes divided into three different categories, uh, three different parts, those eight. The the first two are called the wisdom factors. So they're more having to do with understanding, a wise understanding for our lives. With that wise understanding, we have the next three. and they're called uh, the ethic category. So they have to do with ethics and behavior, how we relate to the world around us. And the last category, which we're starting today, has to do with um, inner development, uh, developing yourself, caring for your own mind, your own heart. And um, the, um, so this idea of caring for yourself, the quality of your mind, quality of your heart, is a very important one in Buddhism. And there's three whole factors of the Eightfold Path that have to do with this kind of self-care to cultivate and care for the quality of our heart or our minds. It's important to recognize that this part of the path, the last three, um, occur after the middle three, which has to do with ethics or behavior, has to do with cultivating healthy relationships with the world around us. It has to do with uh, really clearly with our interface with the world. And we want to have healthy relationships. We want to live in the world in a healthy way. Uh, the idea of going off and caring for yourself and your own inner life, independent of how you live in the world, uh, is doesn't really work very well in Buddhism. Uh, you can, if you're, you know, just uh, um, obnoxious at work, and then you sit down to meditate, something, you know, and get peaceful. Something not quite right. Um, there has to be some um, harmony or some integration or some um, uh, correspondence between how we live our lives and how we do with our, what we do with our inner life. So um, the, the inner factors of the path have a lot to do with uh, building on how we behave in the world. So we care for how we speak. We care for how we act in the world in terms of ethical precepts. We don't kill and steal and lie. And uh, it builds on care about our livelihood. We live, we, our livelihood, where we spend much of our days, is a livelihood that doesn't harm, that supports a clean conscience, that supports creating a good world that we live in. So that's part of the foundation for these next three factors. Another part of the foundation I think is useful to think about is that um, it's very important for people to have their basic needs met. So we have to have enough food, we have to have enough shelter, we have to have enough clothes to be warm or whatever we need, uh, have enough medicine. And these are called the four requisites that the Buddha thought uh, considered very important for his followers to have. So uh, Buddhist monastics, even though from maybe our Western modern point of view, lay point of view, live lives that seem somewhat ascetic, uh, they're not meant to be ascetic. Uh, They're meant to be lives that Provide people with the bare necessity of what they really need to feel safe and comfortable and and healthy in their lives. So it's important to have these things. And for all of us, it's important to have that. Some people in our society don't have enough food, don't have enough safety, don't have enough shelter. And it's important those are there. But an interesting question arises when you have those basic needs satisfied, what is important to do next? What do you think is important to do next? If you have a basic shelter and house, is it important to get a bigger one? If you have, in our society, some people have you know, a car that gets them around. Is it important then to get a bigger car, faster car? Some people have the basic um, you know, food and shelter and basic needs they have. What then? Recreational opportunities? People have good-paying jobs. Is that good enough? What's next? A better-paying job? Acquiring more wealth? Or maybe, you know, wealth is not so important, but status is important. And so you want to, you know, sort of move on to that. So what's, what, 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 do we, what do we build our life on? What do we dedicate our life to do after we have the basic needs taken care of and satisfied? I think it's a very interesting question. And to uh, consider what are your basic needs. You don't have to be as, you know, uh, simple as a Buddhist monastic. But my guess is that most of you here have uh, the most basic needs of your life satisfied well enough. Uh, some people don't, but, um, but you, know, you know, what exactly does it do we need? What do we, what do we consider important after those basic needs are satisfied and met? The suggestion I have is that, um, what, I, what I feel very strongly, is that there's two things that are next. One is caring for other people, and the other is caring for yourself. And so the middle factors of the Eightfold Path have a lot to do with caring for our world. Um, uh, you know, the ethical things, living a life of compassion and care. The next, um, um, but the next three have a lot to do with caring for ourselves. And, and caring for ourselves not by winning the lottery that's now really big, Uh, that wouldn't be necessarily caring for yourself. It wouldn't be about having, you know, uh, better food, you know, go out to more expensive restaurants or bigger bank accounts or bigger houses or bigger cars or bigger status or whatever it might be. But rather, there's something much more important, much more what what Buddhism uh, considers to be a form of wealth, more valuable than conventional wealth. And that has to do with the quality of your heart, the quality of your inner life, the quality of your mind, if you prefer that word. But the, the quality of the heart, that the heart is not in conflict, the heart is not agitated, the heart is not um, uh, weighed down or burdened, that the conscience is clean, that the heart is inspired, uh, that it has a, a, has a sense of being settled on itself, is at peace, um, there's uh, uh, inspiration, there's beauty in the heart that shines forth. I believe that one of the most, probably, I believe the, the most beautiful thing in the universe that you're ever, you'll ever see is a purified heart. No, no art, no thing in nature, nothing is as beautiful as a pure heart. Uh, it's one of the most beautiful things that all of you have, everyone has. Do we care for that? It's very easy not to care for the quality of our inner life because we think that other things are more important. And we can be focused on externals, getting things in the world, and in the process of doing that, stay agitated and stay in some certain way disconnected, as if all these other things we could pursue um, are more meaningful than the profound sense of happiness and well-being that we can feel inside. This profound sense of well-being is not meant to be done in isolation, separate from our care for the world around us. And I think that's part of the brilliance of the Eightfold Path, that uh, caring for our inner life occurs after we've established these healthy relationships in the world around us. They go hand-in-hand, these things, caring for others and caring for ourselves. But we have to care for ourselves. We don't have to, but I think that... uh, I shouldn't have said we have to, but... We can. <laughs> and, um, and it's interesting to consider the beliefs that we, some of us have, some of you have, that says that uh, this doesn't count, that it's not important to look and care for in our life, that it's selfish to do that, or, or there's nothing there that's valuable, or the beliefs we have that other things are much more important. And so we pursue different things than pursuing a high quality of inner life. What are the limit, one of the hindrances to cultivating a good inner life, it, for some people, is the idea that it's selfish, that I shouldn't be doing focusing on myself and being happy myself because all these other people are suffering, and I have to kind of do something for them. And then the question is, how can you best help other people? Do you best help them when you're at peace, or best help them when you're agitated? And I hope that the answer is the first. that um, being, you know, So how can you best help, help someone who's upset? Do you best help them by worrying with them? Some people want you to do that. Mm-hmm. But is that really the best gift you can give them? Or can you offer your compassion, your care, your support while being at peace yourself, calm yourself? When my wife, when our we kids were young, uh, she felt that one of the important qualities of being a parent for her was not to be alarmed. And so, you know, you know if you have been around little kids, there's no shortage of things that new parents can get alarmed about. Um, but, but, you know, then you pass on to the kids, you know, this conditioning of being alarmed and the world's a frightening place. So how do you, you know, condition your kids in the most healthy way we're spending a lot of time worrying around the kids, um, teaches the kids something very powerful. And uh, you might think you're caring for them, but you might be undermining them. So how to care and teach and be responsible, parents or anything, but to in the kind of the, the mother's milk or the parent's milk, the father's milk, whatever his metaphor is, um, you know, what are we passing on in how we are? And I think that how we are is very, very significant. Um, and so our inner life is important for how we support and care for the world around us. So this next step of the Eightfold Path, the sixth one, is called right effort. And it has to do with being a caretaker for our inner life. And, and being able to, to recognize the difference between a rel, you know, a good quality states of mind and poor qualities. And the way that the tradition usually uh, translates this is the idea of the wholesome quality and unwholesome qualities. Wholesome qualities are those which are good and helpful, skillful, uh, that we recognize as being beautiful or meaningful. Um, The unwholesome ones are things that cause suffering, distress. They either cause suffering to ourselves or cause suffering to others. So things like um, hate is considered to be an unwholesome state to have. It's not wholesome, you know. If you spend a lot of time being angry, you probably get sick. There's a uh, remember some years ago I read a story about a doctor in England in seventeen, eighteen hundreds 1800s who had an anger problem, and he apparently said, "The next person who gets me really angry is going to kill me," and uh, he died of a heart attack being angry. So he kind of knew what was coming. So there are unwholesome or unhealthy. So do we know what's healthy for the inner life? Do we know what's unhealthy for the inner life? That distinction is very important in this uh, factor of the right effort. If we have some sense of that difference, then there are four tasks to be done in caring for our inner life. And uh, uh, they're kind of paired. The first is to uh, be preventative. Preventative medicine is very helpful. It's a lot cheaper. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's not only true for med- in medicine, but it's also true for um, the spiritual life, the inner life. To, per- to know what it takes to prevent unwholesome, unskillful, unhealthy states of mind to arise. The opposite of that is called cultivate, to evoke, to develop, to bring forth healthy states of mind, wholesome states of mind. The next two are have to also kind of paired. When unhelpful or unwholesome states of mind have arisen, abandon them. That's the word they use, abandon. Um, and if healthy, wholesome states of mind have arisen, maintain them. Keep them going. So prevent and maintain abandon, no, no, prevent and cultivate, abandon and maintain. Is this knocking there, or, is that me? Not, is that me? It's me. Oops. I apologize. I don't know what... Can you see? I can't see this. Is it? What's it doing? <laughs> Am I breathing in it or... I don't know. Um, so... Um, so it's a very simple thing, um, you know. And I think that in conventional life we do this all the time, right? And um, pre- you know, we prevent things we know that are can cause problems. We fix things which are problematic. We bring forth, we create good conditions, and then we maintain those good conditions. Some of you do it with those things, maybe with your car. You know, if you, you try to prevent problems with your car by having the oil change regularly. You try to, if you have a problem in your car, you fix it, you, you know. And then I don't know what you do about evoking good states in your car, but <laughs> I guess you make sure you have good tires, good brakes. And then, um, and then you keep them good, going. So in terms of um, the, uh, so these, these uh, so wholesome and unwholesome, or healthy and unhealthful in inner states, be able to recognize those, to have a visceral, felt sense, exp- different feeling, not a moralistic idea, not concepts of what's healthy and not healthy, but rather to really feel in your heart or your inner life what it feels to be different from being contracted and open, agitated and peaceful. Um, uh, uh, constricted, or relaxed and flowing and calm. There's a whole range of things that uh, are are considered healthy and a whole range of things which are considered unhealthy. Uh, The difference between feeling a heart that feels love and one that feels hate. Generosity versus one that feels uh, miserly. One that feels wise versus one that's filled with doubt. So there's all these different qualities, and how, how do we relate to them? What do we do about them? How do we live with them, is the question. All, we all, I think we all have all of this. You know, I like to think that, that all human beings are basically, the inner life is basically the same, and we have a wide range of emotions that come and go. We all have wholesome and healthy states of mind that arise. We all have unhealthy and unwholesome ones that occur from time to time. And it's not a personal failing to have it one way or the other, I think it helps to see it as a human condition to have these things come through. But then how do we work with them? What do we do with them when, when they're there? If you're filled with rage, what do you do? Do you guys go, well, great, I can't wait to go and bash someone. This is really fun, you know. Um, you know and these Buddhists who say you should abandon rage, they don't know what they're talking about. I'll show them. And, um, you know, is that, that's not really a good way of living. I don't think it makes sense to live that way. Um, I think most of us monitor ourselves well enough that there are certain states of mind that we're very careful when those states of mind are there, that we don't act on those states, that we kind of you know, do something with them. Um, and so the first one is to prevent. So if you monitor yourself, pay attention to cause and effect in your life, are there certain things that are triggers for you to create unwholesome, unhealthy states of mind that you'd rather not have? Ones that debilitate you, ones that depress you, ones that irritate you to have, ones that kind of trouble you to have, are they trouble, troublesome states? And do you recognize what those triggers are for those states? And, um, and I think becoming wise about those triggers helps you then to be preventative, to, to, to think ahead so, for example, um, uh, if you if you're, have some kind of addiction, say you have a, uh, 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 real trouble with alcohol, as a preventative measure, it's probably not a good idea. It's probably best to avoid having alcohol in your refrigerator or in your home. It just, you know it's probably a good idea. Um, some people go further. And they probably, it's probably a good idea not to go to places where people are drinking. It's just a good prevention. And some people, some people I think because they've seen the, tra- the challenges they have of, the, of their addictive behavior, know they better not um, do this. I've known a lot of people in the last, it seems to me like in the last five years, dramatic escalation of people who come uh, somewhat distressed about some, one addiction, some addiction or other having to do with computers and the internet. And, um, and even people who, what they're watching on the internet, maybe is not necessarily unwholesome, but it's the amount of time they spend, which is the problem, they get hooked in. And the quality of their mind uh, decreases. They feel lousy. Just kind of feel it has a certain kind of I don't know the adrenaline or the serotonin or something you know makes them feel good maybe in the moment, but they just kind of get wiped out and it doesn't feel good. I, as I watch my mind stay in the computer, I'm convinced that uh, spending a lot of time looking at screens changes the quality of the mind in a dramatic way for the worse. And uh, it's kind of it kind of at least in my mind it kind of hypes it up kind of increases the agitation or the speed or the... It's kind of like a more superficial level of a mind is operating that's kind of like operating like on caffeine. And I don't think that that place to operate from, for me, is a very good quality place to be. It's kind of like I'm pulled out of the place of rest in my heart that I feel much more settled and peaceful and at ease and I don't know what it is maybe other people don't have that issue maybe there's minds work brains work differently or depends what people do but I have to be careful with how much time I spend on the computer because the way I engage in the computer uh, after a while uh, I just I don't feel good about it so I know people sometimes have these addictions to that so preventative is limit how much time you're on TV or on the computer or whatever if it's not healthy for you to do it Uh, get enough sleep some people getting not getting enough sleep is a huge condition um, for uh, having all kinds of unwholesome states of mind arise. So I can go on and on, but the idea is the important thing is for each of you, if you're interested in this whole approach, is uh, to be able to recognize and to know what are the triggers, what are the conditions that are are um, you need to be careful for, and how to do preventive maintenance of yourself. Um, not look at things that pull you into their world, not talk to the people that pull you into worlds that are emotional states which are not healthy for you to be in. Or, if you know there are triggers, know the things that cause problems for you, and you have to engage in them, prepare yourself ahead. If you're going to be talking to someone who's always complaining and always being angry and you tend to get pulled into their world and you tend to also start complaining and getting angry as well, And it doesn't feel good to do that. Maybe you have to kind of not just show up without thinking about it, but maybe before you meet with that person, you have to spend time preparing yourself. Calm down, meditate, or at least set your intention and remind yourself, I'm talking to someone who pulls me into this negative universe. Let me try to stay mindful so I don't get pulled in. That's preventative. So there's a whole series of things you can do and then but if an unhealthy unwholesome state of mind has arisen then the task is to if you if you don't want to live that way the task is how to have a course correction how to abandon the unwholesome states of mind the unwholesome activities of the mind unwholesome ways of thinking that are going on and one of the most useful things that many people find in our tradition that helps this is to be mindful to be attentive, to be aware of what's going on. And one of the reasons why this is so important for many people that I know is that there's a a common syndrome that when we notice things about ourselves we don't like, things that are uncomfortable or troubling, is to get more troubled by it. So, you know, perhaps we get angry and then get angry with ourselves for being angry. Seeing that we have some kind of addiction issue and then feel shame or feel bad about ourselves because we have an addiction issue. The beauty about mindfulness is it doesn't, in and of itself judge what we're mindful of. And it helps us to disengage from taking things in a negative way personally, negative personal identification with something. and so we could feel weighed down by it and troubled by it, and it could sometimes spin out because uh, we just get in the spiral of just feeling worse and worse about how we are. So one of the first steps of abandoning is not to abandon, but rather, in a metaphoric way, step back and just be mindful and see it. Don't be caught in it as much. Practice mindfulness to help you step out of its orbit, out of its gravitational pull of what's going on. And it's quite a remarkable thing to have the capacity, slowly gained, learned, the capacity to have a negative state of mind, negative qualities going on, and to be able to watch it or be present for it with a mind that is not it, that's free of it. Sometimes identification with negative states is so strong that we feel we are it. But mindfulness, as it gets stronger and stronger, shows us that there's a part of us, a part of our mind, a part of who we are, that is not enmeshed in what's going on. And there's actually, uh, oddly enough perhaps, there can be a joy, kind of a delight even, in bringing mindfulness to unhealthy states of mind, troubling states of mind, because of the strength of the mindfulness. Wow, this is fun. (laughs) Hard to believe, isn't it? So that's one of the first things. And then, abandoning also is to learn what it takes to to no longer be caught in these things and the deeper we have to let let go of them. The Buddhist tradition offers a lot of tools, a lot of techniques for this. Mindfulness is the forefront. Get to know it well. Not just learn to observe it uh, with some kind of equanimity, but to study it more carefully, try to understand what's going on. And sometimes by understanding it more deeply, we can learn uh, what what we believe that we're holding on to. That's a trigger for it. And we can maybe let go of something. So the idea of studying something, getting to know it better, is really important. A technique that the tradition offers is uh, sometimes it's useful to ignore something and to, and to uh, select something else to pay attention to. Turn your attention to something else. So, for example, if the issue is um, there's too many alcohol bottles in your refrigerator and you're really tempted... Maybe you should turn your attention to something else. Like go visit your neighbor who doesn't have any alcohol in her, in her house. <laughs> you know, and and, uh, and uh, perhaps you know spending time there can you know make it easier for you kind of to calm down and to kind of not be caught. And then you kind of settle out, and you maybe forget about what's in your refrigerator. And then you send your neighbor, can you go there and throw that out? <laughs> You know, but the idea is so sometimes there's healthy and selective ways to ignore what the issue is, step aside, and focus on something else to help you disentangle with the situation. And I think it's often intuitive to do that. Uh, sometimes we get, pull ourselves out of challenging situations so we can cool down, um, and then perhaps go back and deal with it later, the situation after we've cooled down. Um, there's a beautiful, I don't know if it's beautiful, but. Um, um, uh, in the ancient tradition in the the Buddha, um, I think he appreciates that this is really hard sometimes it 's really hard to get to kind of just to get pulled out of the grip of very, very strong negative or unwholesome, unhealthy, troubling states of mind or impulses that we have and um, And so the, when he gives a series of techniques of what you can do the last technique he gives is to uh, bear down and grind your teeth and not give in. And, uh, you know, usually you don't hear that kind of advice from a Buddhist teacher. But I think it's realistic, occasionally. Occasionally, the the, the tremendous, for some people, the tremendous power and force of desire and hate and the way that grips us and propels us Um, uh, it might be the best thing a person can do is to just grit their teeth, sit still, um, hold on tight, and not give in. Um, It can be the wisest thing to do. Occasionally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If nothing else has worked. Rather than making a big mess. So then there's um, evoking, or cultivating, bringing forth, wholesome or healthful states of mind. And when I was a new Buddhist student, um, I strongly mistrusted this kind of idea. The idea that you would create good states of mind seemed very artificial to me and insincere. It took me a long time and a lot of practice to come to appreciate that um, it's a beautiful thing to do. And it's a fine thing to do, and it doesn't have to be artificial. It doesn't have to be saccharine, it doesn't have to be pretending something. uh, And there's a lot of ways in which to evoke or bring forth uh, healthy states of mind, or healthy qualities, or healthy attitudes. And some of them have to do with just simple choices. Um, Is the glass half full or half empty? What do you focus on? Um, I don't know if this is a good example, but if your friend has um, uh, a really beautiful sweater on, but kind of plain, little bit kind of ugly pants on, <laughs> uh, are you ob- which one are you obligated to mention? Talk to, to mention. There's no obligation to mention any of them. You could talk about the weather, but uh, you you know you know where, where do you go? Oh, I can't believe these pants you're wearing. <laughs> Is that really the best use of your time and your voice and your focus of your attention? Your attention is an important thing, what you pay attention to. And and what you bring other people's attention to is very meaningful as well. Maybe it's important if they're going to some important meeting where having better pants is important, maybe you could gently say to them, you know, you might think of other pants. But other <laughs> <laughs> but it's a world of difference between saying, those pants are ugly. Versus saying, that sweater is beautiful. That's a, that sweater looks really nice on you. Is one insincere and one more sincere? Is the ugly pants thing more sincere <laughs> than saying, that's you know, it's a beautiful sweater? It's, I think, I'm suggesting here it's a matter of choice. Sometimes you can choose what you focus on. Um, and uh, th- there's a lot of beauty in this world. And there's a lot of beauty in you. There's probably more beautiful qualities and states of mind that you in yourself than you realize, but if we're fixated on the negative, or fixated on particular things, or what troubles us the most, we might not notice that it's a beautiful day. We might not notice that, uh, you know, that there are things that are really going well in our life. I have a little pet philosophy that I, I kind of like. So I don't know how well it works, but. I'll give it to you anyway, <laughs> that by the time a person is 50 years old, they can be assured that something has gone really well. <laughs> something has really worked well. It's not easy to get to 50. Something worked really well. And I've seen people who, you know, get to 80 and they think they're still, they think they're a mess and they're, you know, still nothing works and, but, you know, just know, if those of you reached 50, congratulations. <laughs> Something has worked really well. Um, and, and take that in. Appreciate that. What is it that you can appreciate about yourself? So one of the, one of the important practices that the tradition offers is the idea of um, reflecting on your good qualities and reflecting on the good things that you've done in order to help you evoke healthy, good states of mind. Something you feel good about and happy about what you 've done, and one of the reasons to do good things be helpful to other people is so you can feel bad, uh, good about yourself. Some people find this goes against the grain of how their mind works uh, there's the, the momentum in their mind is so strong that nothing they do counts that the only thing that counts is all the things that they did bad and wrong, and you know you don 't there are people like like me when I was younger where I didn't have to do anything wrong to be guilty. I mean, it wasn't simply that I was, uh, you know, guilty, and, uh, guilty until proved innocent. Uh, I was guilty before I did anything. <laughs> even before I even thought about doing anything. I didn't have to do anything to feel guilty. It was like, you know, Gil is short for guilt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was quite remarkable, the capacity of the mind to get into these negative mind states, you know. And, um... And so, so, what are the beliefs, what are the operating systems you have? Are Very important to understand. This idea of noticing and monitoring yourself, noticing how your mind works, noticing the patterns of how it works, so you can start questioning them. So you can put a question mark behind them. Do I need to be guilty? Uh, why do I give my guilt so much authority? Why do you give... Your anger, so much authority. Why do you give your desires so much authority? Why do you give your negative self-image so much authority? Where does the authority come from? That this, you know, put a question mark. What happens? But but to spend some time reflecting and thinking and considering the things about yourself that can bring you joy, things about your life, the things about what you've done, the qualities you have, um, even if you know, maybe you're one of those people who 95% of who you are is pretty rotten. Maybe you think of yourself that way. At least the way you kind of... But how about spending more time appreciating the 5% that's really good? If you do, I would... I'm pretty confident that if you do, if you appreciate the 5% that's really good about yourself you'll shift the percentages. And then more of you will be good. More of you will be healthy and wholesome. You'll water those seeds. You'll, you'll cultivate and develop those qualities more. The, appreci- the healthy and wholesome mental states that we have, when they're appreciated, they have a chance to grow. When they're ignored, they don't grow. If you spend a lot of time appreciating in a negative sense of the term, your unwholesome states of mind, it has a way of kind of festering them and making them stronger. So be very careful. So part of the tradition says, cultivate the wholesome, cultivate the healthy. Actively do it. It's a good thing. The last thing is, when you have some good qualities going, when the inner, your inner life, the quality of your heart is good, care for it. Maintain it. Keep it going. Don't cling to it. Don't kind of insist on it. But perhaps there are simple ways of keeping it going. Uh, not kind of rushing into the next thing. So say that you have helped a neighbor. Maybe you took those the alcohol bottles, and threw them away. And it was helpful, and you kind of saw it made a huge difference in your neighbor's life. And while you did it, you felt good. And you felt good to know that at least for this night, your neighbor is going to sleep safe. There's no danger for your neighbor who's been struggling. And it feels good to have that done that. It feels good to have a better situation with your neighbor. So you could just kind of linger with that and kind of appreciate that before you uh, rush off to do your internet addiction. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of but they forget that um but- wh- what what are the good things, good qualities, the love, the generosity, the calm, the peace that you are capable of experiencing, and are there ways that you give it up too quickly, the ways in which you abandon it too quickly because you rush off to do the next thing in a way that doesn't kind of let you, let you register and stay and linger in a good way, or to be informed by, or be supported by, or be motivated by the beauty in your hearts, the good qualities of who you are. Don't overlook these things. So, the last thing I'll say <clears throat> is you're all beautiful people you are all really beautiful people. And those of you who are not yet 50, you're really beautiful. (laughs) Something's really working well. And it's really good to take that in and to appreciate that and be nourished by that and, um, and live as if that's true. Let that come forth. Let that be who you are. Appreciate that. And appreciate people's beautiful tones in their cell phones. <laughs> they're they're it's really nice, some of them. See? So, um, so please um, take good care of yourself. Cherish yourself. Be the caretakers, custodians of your own beauty, your own inner life. And perhaps as you go to sleep tonight... As you put your head on the pillow, spend a little bit of time considering uh, your good qualities, the good things you've done, and considering that whatever percentage you have, one percent, half a percent, I don't care what percentage, that's really beautiful and wholesome and good about yourself, and appreciate that. Thank you.